So the book of James contains no formulated doctrine, but is described more like the Proverbs of the New Testament. You probably have read that somewhere else. The, pro- the purpose of the book is offer practical help for those early Christians who were scattered because of their persecution. This James, likely the half-brother, when you say that, that sounds a little odd. What do you mean half-brother of Jesus? Well, because Jesus had, whose father was, he, was his? Right? The, the, the Holy Spirit, God the Father through the Holy Spirit, Mary. And then you have James, the brother of Jesus, but we call him half-brother because Joseph obviously is his earthly father. Makes sense. So, that, so that's not an odd thing as much as you might think it. Josephus calls this James the just one. And he even goes so far at Josephus. Is that a name you know? Right? In the, the big historical, right? So Josephus calls him the just one. He even describes the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem as being God's vengeance on them for stoning James to death. And of his death, Eusebius, another historian, wrote, and they began to stone him, for when he was cast down, he did not die at once, but he turned and fell on his knees, saying, O Lord our Father, forgive them, I beseech thee, for they know not what they do. And then Eusebius records, one took a club and smote the righteous one, and he died. James was noted as having been often on his knees asking forgiveness for his people and himself, so often that his knees it is written, grew hard and worn like a camel's. Now, you'll have to Google that one to see what they look like, but imagine his time on his knees. The trials of life to which he addresses himself are on account of their faith and following of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Now, in our current crisis, the struggles and problems that we're facing are not because we're Christian. However... With the current struggles and crisis and fears and frustrations that we face, I think you will find many things that we can apply to our life in those circumstances that we face. And in the face of such opposition, he gives four imperatives in the verses that are before us. Verse 2 is the word count. Verse 3 is the word know. Verse 4 is the word let. Verse 5 is the word ask. And you'll listen to these directives as I read the verses 2 through 5. Listen for them. My brethren, here's the first. Count it all joy when you fall into these various diverse temptations. Knowing this, second imperative, that the trying of your faith works what? Patience. And we need that. And let So count, know, let, verse 4, patience, have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if any of you lack wisdom, let him what? Ask. So there's the fourth imperative of God, that give it to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. So four imperatives. James says if you follow these, you'll be able to rise above the circumstance of life. Because most of the time when people ask you, how are you doing, what do you tend to say? Well, under the circumstances, right, given the circumstances, you know, uh, people often say, well, I can't complain. I say, oh, you could, right, you could, but the circumstances we often feel like we're living under. So 
how can we not live there, but live in a way that still honors the Lord and our faith and relationship to the Lord? The key word or command there in verse 2 is to count, consider. Oh, by the way, I put notes in your bulletin if you want to do that. Some people get frustrated, like, what did he say? I'm, I'm on point two and you're still on point one or something. But it's that first word is to assess the problem, to count it all joy, to just take a moment, take a breath, step back from it a little bit, right, and assess this, uh, this concern that we have. So giving some evaluation to it. What's the measurement? What is the measurement against which everything else is considered in your life? How in the world can we count it all joy? How can we do that? Because when someone dies, it's not, there's not a cause for rejoicing. And you say, well, but they were believers. Okay, so what have we just done? What have we just done there when we have a circumstance of life that in many other ways could be, you know, under the circumstances, how can we count it all joy? Against what backdrop do we put? Where do we go? What do we turn to? Our salvation, where do we read about that? The Bible, right? Where do we find promises? Where do we find hope? You've got to put everything against the Word of God. That's how we assess the problem. Without this measure, everything becomes relative to the circumstance. And having a good day is now dependent upon the circumstance if it turns in my favor or not. Because if today doesn't turn in my favor, then I'm not having a good day. Right? We've all been there. But we go back to the Word of God. We go back to the scriptures, and we evaluate things based upon what God's Word says, which never changes, right? It's new every morning. It's faithfulness never fails, etc., etc. If, for example, you had an argument with somebody, what's the only thing in the, in, the, in the midst of that argument, what's the only thing you want to know? That you are right and they are wrong, right? If you don't have this as your backdrop, that's the only thing you can, in, this, in the midst of a circumstance, that's the only thing you can do. You can just, you know, react to that if you don't have God's Word in your heart. By the way, if you, if you always have to be right, it won't be long before you're living among a lot of losers. That doesn't sound very good either, does it? Now be careful. The Bible doesn't settle all my disagreements. Did you know that? It doesn't. And for that matter, it doesn't fix all my problems. But it does keep me settled when first I consider what it says about everything else as relative to God and His Word and Romans 8, right? And now I begin to understand that I don't get it all. I don't know why. I don't know how. But I know that God is doing what? Right? Working all things together like a recipe. Working all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So you'd better keep the measure, that's the Bible, God's Word, close at hand and heart. Because James says, he doesn't say, you know, just in case, you might have a problem. What does he say? When? Right? So it's not like a, like a, a vague possibility. It is a reality. When you fall into it. So expectation. Not just evaluate it against God's Word, but expect that these problems are going to come. See, couples can't wait until they face divorce to ask themselves, what does the Bible say about marriage? Right? You, you can't wait. You, parents can't wait until their kids turn into teenagers to ask themselves, how in the world do I raise up a child in the nurture of the Lord? 
I, I can't wait till then, right? You, that's why you have to spend time in the Word of God to bring it along with you. Teenagers can't wait until they face some temptation to ask themselves, what are the moral implications of this thing that I'm being tempted with? If you'd put off accepting Christ, you can't wait until face, facing death to say, what does God's Word say about, the, about salvation, about eternal life? Now, if you're there, I'm going to take the Bible, I'm going to come alongside you, I'm going to share with you, but that's, you don't want to wait till then. We have to live with a sense that I know problems are going to come, so what do I need to be sure and do? Read God's Word. I know it's coming, so I better read God's Word ahead of time. You have to consider with expectation what the Bible says ahead of time, and that with joy, or you will endure it afterward with great sorrow. And you notice the words there, fall into. The Bible gives ample warning concerning the various trials of life. But if you ignore the warning signs, right? You say, well, I don't care what the Bible says. And you, don't, you ignore that, and you go on your way. What are you going to do? You're going to fall into the various trials of life, the devil's pit. All the devil need have you do is doubt his evil intention. And he'll have you right where he wants you in the circumstance of life. Not only are we as Christians not exempt from various trials, but understand that there are some specific things. And I don't know that we endure them very often, but there are some times that we as Christians will face certain things, ridicule. Uh, you know, when you were in school, if you, if you uh, were a Christian at uh, uh, Chai, right? I, I grew up at Chichester, and uh, you're a Christian, and you're going to Chichester school, um, you kind of kept that to yourself probably, you know? Because if you said much about it, you'd probably be ridiculed. But I don't know that we face too much ridicule in our world today. But what did Paul tell Timothy? Everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Sometimes at our job, because we didn't, cheat to get ahead, you know, we didn't fudge the truth, we spoke it, we lived it, and sometimes our honesty puts us behind, where other people seem to get ahead. And that's where, where David said, right, I, I love this, the comment of David, when he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper, <laughs> right, why do they seem to get away with it? I can't, my own conscience won't let it get me get away with it, and then not getting away with it, I end up in more trouble than they did. How does that happen? I don't get it. So then know this, verse 3, right? You've got to acknowledge that God has a purpose that's far beyond we could imagine. Knowing this, the trying of your faith does what? So the key word is knowing, coming to know, to learn the explanation of a truth by experience. You have to learn God's word. Now all of us, you know, whether you grew up in a Sunday school class or a VBS program or a Christian school, you know, somewhere along the way we learned God's word, we heard it. But this is more than just knowing the verse. This is coming to sort of internalize it. You know the difference, right? When you could take that truth, ah, now I get it. You know, and it, and it just takes a hold in our heart. Knowing this, first of all, testing brings an assurance. Verse 3, faith, the assurance of our faith, the genuineness of your faith. It's not proven here at church. It's, you don't prove your faith by how often you go to church. You prove your faith when you leave church and you go to work. You prove your faith when you leave church and you go to school. Or you go to your job. Or you interact with that neighbor that you just can't seem to get along with sometimes, right? That happens. Not my neighbors. But to understand, that's where we prove our faith. Faith can only ever be proven in the difficult circumstance of life. 
That's the idea of being put to the test. And when put to the test, the one thing I know for sure is, I am his and he is mine. That's the one thing I know beyond all others. And with each new trial, become more and more convinced until like Paul's crescendo, again, Romans chapter 8. And you get down to the end of Romans 8. We know some of those verses. But what does he conclude? I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor angels come nor things present. Nothing, he says, right? Nothing is able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. That's a truth. But there are days when you know it, right? When you get it. When you understand it and you believe with all your heart. That's, that's this knowing. And each new trial I become convinced. Testing also brings an advantage to us because notice there, so our, our faith is tested, right? So I'm, I'm certain of my salvation as I go through the circumstances, but then also notice the advantage I have because what is going to be worked in my life that I know a lot of people don't have? What's going to be worked in my life? Look on in verse 3. What does it say? I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to be smarter. What does it say I'm going to be? What am I learning? Patience, right? Patience. Now, of all things I know about you, Hebrews 10 tells me a universal truth. You and you and you, you have need of patience, right? Patience is the single greatest attribute of life. Patience is the single greatest attribute of life. I know you're smart. I know you think you have an answer. I know you want the answer and you want it yesterday. I get that. But if you want to know what God wants, don't lean on your own understanding. Have a little patience in this. In all the circumstances of life, acknowledge Him and He does what? He begins to direct your path. Patience is endurance. It's the ability to keep going when others have fallen by the wayside. One translation calls it perseverance. Another used the word endurance. Strong's concordance defines it as steadfastness. Biblically, we know patience as the purpose of Daniel. We know it as the courage of David. We know it as the character of Job. And God encouraged Joshua, be strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do all the law, according as Moses has written. And turn not to the left hand or to the right, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. The advantage we have by the testing of our faith is that patience places me in the, in the position that God wants me to be so that I can find His purpose in my life. Because we tend to jump ship. By the way, that's what Hebrews t told us. You have need of patience. After that, you've done the will of God. You might inherit the promise. Why do we not inherit the promise? Because we got very anxious. And we jump shipped a little too quick and went off on our own before we realized what God is up to. Testing also brings an, uh, an approval. The word trying, right? The trying of your faith. What is that about? If you dug up a chunk of something shiny, 
and you took it to what we call the assayer's office. That's the office where you want to go to have it tested. Are you with me so far? All right. You don't go to the assayer's office for testing to say, I hope it's not true. You go to the assayer's office hoping that it's going to be gold, right? You want to know that this is, this is true. That's this word, trying, for the purpose of approval. However, know this also, that the devil wants to twist your circumstance and make you doubt God's good intention. Joseph's brothers... Right? Everybody knows that story. What if when he was thrown into the pit, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Right? What if when he was thrown in the pit, he said, oh God, that's not fair. What if when his boss's wife lied about him? What if when his friend in the prison turned on him? What if at any point along the way, Joseph would have said, it's not fair? What would have been the outcome? It would have been totally different. He would have missed God's purpose. Know this, patience is not an option, or you will be left forever wondering, if not doubting, what is God up to, or maybe he's just completely out of touch without patience. Acknowledge the fact God has a purpose, and leads us to the plan, verse 4. Let patience have her perfect work. That's the plan. Plan of God. Let, let God do His work. It's not a passive term. It's meant to hold on to, to cling to, closely associated with it. Suggest ownership. As if to remind us now, don't forget, cling to this truth, hold to it tightly, let the process of learning patience, verse 3, now let that run its full course. Let it sink deep into your soul. Cling to the sovereignty of God, casting all your cares upon Him. That's letting, right? We let it go. Not passive. It's not like I give up. But casting all your cares upon Him, knowing, letting it be there, that He cares for me. First Peter. There's no more discouraged person than a Christian who lives a partial Christian life, never quite sure that they can trust God, never quite sure God has a plan or a purpose, never quite sure it's going to work out to their benefit. Surrender is really what this verse is all about, verse 4. Consider the experience that comes with the experience of surrender is that you'll come to know the perfect work of patience. Not just have patience, but you'll come through fully understanding the perfect work of patience. In fact, it says you'll, you will be perfect. Imagine that. An entire, complete, lacking, wanting nothing. Mature, complete, never forsaken. There's a maturity that comes, and it can only come by experience. There's something missing if you never quite surrender to the idea that God is in control. If you're never quite sure. There's a certain validation to the lessons of life, by the way, that comes with experience. And so I go down to verse 9. Because all of us, you know, I can tell you something, but let the brother of low degree, verse 9, rejoice in that he is exalted. We've all been there, whether we've been in the low degree or we've had good days, good days and bad days. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. 
For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of it fashioned with, and perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man. This is why James is often called the, the, um, the Proverbs of the New Testament, and how many times he uses Beatitudes to make his point. Verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. The example of surrender. Neither the weak or the strong, rich or poor, none of us. Who is exempt from problems? Are you exempt from problems because you're a believer? Are you exempt from problems because you came to church today? Are you exempt from problems because you dropped a little money in the offering plate? What exempts you from problems? Nothing, right? There's nothing that exempts us from problems. But the trials of life do tend to put everything else in perspective. How many of us have had that sort of thought in our mind? You've heard other people talk about it, that we've been reminded of the things that are really important, right? So we spend a little more time at home, we spend a little more time on this or that, and we begin to realize, you know what, That's, that I do miss that, but I understand what things are really, truly important. And you see the similarity to Matthew's beatitude. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward. So this is persecution in particular for lives lived as Christian opposed by the world. John Wesley said he attributed most of his success to the trials of life. Why? Because he said, because of the trials of my life, I spent time on my knees in prayer. And he said it was on my knees in prayer that I gained the greatest victory. I mentioned Wednesday night, one of our seniors, right? She still gets down on her knees to pray. I'm not saying you have to get down on your knees, but that ought to be the position of our heart, right? That ought to be the position of our heart. So it is down on our knees, then we begin, and the last point in the notes there is to acquire the power that God has for us. Verse 5, so if any of you lack wisdom, what do you do? You ask. Over in chapter 4, he says you don't have because you don't, you don't ask. Of course, sometimes we ask for all the wrong reasons. For he that wavereth, oh, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, you're up and down and back. He that wavereth, for he that wavers like wave of the sea driven with wind and tossed. Don't let that man think. Don't think for a moment that if that's your attitude, you will receive anything of the Lord. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. These verses tell us what we need to succeed in the Christian life. Why we need it, even how to get it. What do we ask for? What do you ask for? When you got a problem, what do you ask for? If you're sick, what do you want? I want to get better, right? You lost your job, what do you want? You want a job, right? So we tend to say prayers based upon the circumstance of our life. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's the limit of your prayer, if that's the limit of what you ask, who was it before? I think it was Joey was talking about Remember the, the prayer you were asking in reference to a job once? Somebody else got it, and then you ended up with something you didn't even imagine, right? If we limit our prayers to only what we know, well, that's not terribly exciting. But to believe that God can do abundantly above what we could ever ask or think, now that gets pretty exciting. So we ask for wisdom. Wisdom to know and understand. That's what we ask for. 
Wisdom is God's understanding of my circumstance. More often than not, our prayers are based upon my understanding of my circumstance. And if this is a problem, this is the solution. No, let's wait a second. I'm asked for wisdom. So in this circumstance of my life, Lord, remind me what's important. Remind me of the things I need to know and remember. Prayer is not a request for something as if I know best. It's a positioning of my spirit because God knows best. Prayer is how I acknowledge him in all my ways and he'll direct my path. Then why do we ask? If God knows everything, why do we ask? I know what I'm supposed to ask for is wisdom. But God already knows everything, so then why do I bother? Well, first of all, if that's your question, you haven't been listening. He tells you to. But, the, but let's get where it goes. What? Yes, he tells me to, but I need to ask of God because I don't know. Maybe this sickness is the purpose in my life. Everybody gets sick at times. Everybody dies. People lose jobs. What is God's will, wisdom, in this circumstance of my life that I'm facing right now? Everybody else in the world is facing COVID. Lord, what do you want to teach us? That's wisdom. It's not telling God what he ought to do about my circumstance, right? It's asking God, what what do you have for me? So it's positioning my spirit to say, God, what do you need in this circumstance? What have I been ignoring? It's not like God sent COVID to punish us. That's not, it's just out there, okay? But God, what, in this circumstance, what do you have for me? So I use the word revelation. I need God's understanding. This verse says he'll give it liberally. He'll give it liberally. I need to know. I need to understand. I need something from God. And don't be shy to ask because God abrades not, nor does he ever get irritated. Later on, James 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. You're never going to ask God and he's going to say something. Well, our spirits might convict us a little bit. He might, in our own spirit, we might hear the words, um, you know, I told you so. Or, but God doesn't do that. God's not going to use those words. God's not going to say, I told you so. God's not going to put us down in that way. God wants to, right? He wants to hear from us. Be careful how you ask, because verse 6 says, ask in faith. Ask in faith. Nothing wavering. You know what the greatest enemy to answer prayer is? Somebody's going to take me to a verse in Psalms. But do you know what the greatest enemy to prayer, answered prayer is? So somebody might say sin. Right? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But the answer to prayer, what? Doubt. That's exactly right. Unbelief. Doubt. Well, God, I, you know, I'm not sure that you're... Unbelief and doubt is the greatest enemy to answered prayer. Your heart has to want to believe. You must be ready to embrace whatever God's answer is. Because oftentimes we'll pray, an answer comes, but that can't be the answer because that's not what I wanted. Right? The doubting, pessimistic Christian is like a wave of the sea, driven back and forth, constantly changing with tides and trends of life. And we live under the circumstance. Peter was a good illustration. You know this. If you saw that uh, 
that uh, drama that I told you to watch over Easter, right? Peter, remember, walking on the water? If it be the Lord, let me walk to you. And then what happened? Right? He started looking around. And it says that it was, the winds were boisterous. He became afraid. He began to sink. And when he began to sink, what happened? He said, Lord, save me. And the Lord looked down and said, I told you so. No, what did the Lord do? He reached down and took him and brought him up. So there are plenty of times that we pray and we're never quite sure, and maybe it's a panic prayer, and there's nothing wrong with just a prayer that says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And he'll reach down. He won't. This is not the time or the place to give you some lesson about all the things he told you and you're not doing. When you pray that prayer, he just reaches down and grabs you and pulls you up. Sets my feet back on the rock to stay. Now, I may have some lessons to learn, but I know God 